Welcome to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit us at compasslu.org. Amen. All right, well, good morning. This morning we're getting into Ephesians chapter 6, and we only have three services left in the book of Ephesians. Uh, It's been a fun journey, and uh, only two left where I'm preaching, actually. Next week we have the honor of having our brother Dan uh, preaching, so that'll be fun. He'll be talking about the armor of God section um, in the middle of Ephesians chapter 6. But what we're going to do this morning is we're going to go through what I've called the household code, and that is the beginning of Ephesians chapter 6. And of course, we've been working our way through the letter to the Ephesians slowly. We're taking the time to read this book with a fresh perspective. And we've been recently working our way through the practical half of uh, the book of Ephesians, chapters 4 through 6. Uh, Through this walk, through this last part of Ephesians, we've seen the importance of our words and how they can serve others or not serve others. We've seen the importance of avoiding covetousness and avoiding sexual immorality. We've seen the importance of, on the pro side, doing worship, godly worship, and being thankful, thanksgiving. In the past few weeks, we've been talking about uh, godly submission by working through uh, Paul's exhortation first to wives and to husbands. And we're going to continue with what Paul says to some other groups of people this morning through his household code. But before we tackle our question for today, I want to bring up the four uh, themes of Ephesians that we've been working through. The first one is that Ephesians was a letter written 2,000 years ago to a community of faith, and therefore it's community-oriented and not individualistic. Um, It's not meant to be understood in a modern Western hyper-individualistic culture. It's meant to be read in the ancient uh, community-oriented culture. And so we've been reading it that way. Uh, The second thing is new creation and new order of things in Jesus. The idea that when we encounter Jesus, when we have that apocalypse, that moment where uh, who he is and what that means to us is unveiled to us, that it changes our lives, that it transforms us. And we're going to see the importance of that today as we've been seeing it. Then the third and the fourth thing are related. The uh, third thing is unity in Christ. Uh, in, the, in the letter to the Ephesians, that's mostly related as Jew versus Gentile being united together into one body, into one man. In our society, in our culture, it's a little bit different, but uh, we've been talking about that too. Then finally, division and battle. When we do see division, when we do see conflict, uh, we know that the powers are at work, as Paul would say. Uh, the powers of the world are at work. And so uh, there is a fight, there is a battle with the powers, and we're going to talk about that in more detail next week. So our question for today is, uh, what does a godly household look like? And we're going to talk about uh, two other sets of people that Paul points out here in this context, uh, but we're also going to reflect a little bit about wives and husbands too, like we have been the prior two weeks. So I want to begin by uh, thinking about where we left off last week. Uh, Last week we read some quotes Uh, from some ancient sources about the household code. And the household code was a standard of ethics. It was addressed to the head of household. And usually the head of household was a husband. Uh, This person was a father. And this person was a slave owner. And so household codes uh, emphasize all three relationships. Those are the three primary relationships in the Roman household. And uh, usually they address the head of household, these, these codes did, uh, because the head of household was viewed as sort of like a, um, uh, a person that worked for the state. And, of course, the household was uh, a microcosm for the empire. And so if there was unity in the empire, if there was to be unity in the empire, then all the households had to be managed well and taken care of and that sort of a thing. 
And so the head of household was viewed as the top of the pyramid in the Roman culture. And everyone underneath that, the wife, the children, the slaves, uh, they, were all, they all found their meaning through the head of household, through that person. So everyone else's existence, all their meaning was found in relationship to that one person, the head of household. That's what they thought. That's not what Paul's saying. <laughs> one of the threads that we've been seeing time and again here in the letter to the Ephesians is the importance of honor, of status, and social standing in the ancient world. Uh, we saw that in chapter 2 when we talked about gifts and grace, how a lot of that has to do with the ancient client-patron relationship and what, when you gave a gift, what would be expected when you received a gift and that sort of a thing. There was relationships built into that that were based on honor and on status and on social standing. Uh, we saw it with the Jews and the Gentiles question. Uh, for, for many, many years, the Jews considered themselves higher status. They were the people of God. And now Paul's saying, no, wait a second. Now the Gentiles are part of the same body with the Jews. So that addresses social status. It addresses honor and, and standing. Um, and so uh, we're now seeing the same thing being played out in the household code, where there are these social expectations for how society should be ordered and, and how we should live in a family or in a household. And Paul's relentless point here in Ephesians is that the gospel levels the playing field. The gospel levels the playing field. We all have equal honor. We all have equal status. We all have equal standing in this new society, in this new humanity that God is bringing about through Christ. Now, we might serve in different roles. We might have different gifts. But no one is worth more or less than anyone else. That's the key point. And so this is absolutely foundational for what we're going to be reading today. With all that in mind from last week and what we've been building through the, the letter to the Ephesians, let's go ahead and read our passage in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. I'm going to pause here for one second. Show of hands, those of you that are uh, either my age or younger or those who are raised in the church, how many of you, was this the first verse you memorized? <laughs> I'm seeing quite a few hands go up. All right. Yes, this was the first verse that I had to memorize that my parents taught me. That I was to obey my parents and the Lord for this was right. And they're not here today, but uh, uh, they would probably chuckle at this too, that they, they taught me this too. This is a good thing for them to teach me. Verse 2, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Verse 5, bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. All right, so here, as I mentioned last week, we, we had him addressing wives and husbands last week. And I, as I pointed out, he, he addresses wives before husbands, which wives were never addressed in the ancient household codes. He addresses them first. He not only addresses them, but he addresses them first. Well, here we have Paul addressing children before parents or fathers, 
And then we have him addressing slaves before he addresses masters. So again, remember that household codes were important for the empire's stability. And we, we know that there is a social structure and a whole thing in place uh, to make sure that the whole society would run the way that the empire wanted it to run. And so our first takeaway here is, is that Paul addresses wives, children, and slaves. And he does this, I believe, because he knows that they have the Spirit of God. He knows that they have the ability to discern good from evil and that they have access to the Father just like the head of household does. Remember, Paul said that back earlier in the letter to the Ephesians. He says, we all now have access by one spirit to the Father. And so Paul is addressing wives and children and slaves uh, to be subversive because he agrees with the idea that the gospel is leveling the playing field, that everyone has access to the Father. Now, our second takeaway is, is that in each of these pairings, when we get a command or a suggestion, in, depending on the context, for the uh, lower status, I'm putting that in quotes because that's not how Paul views it, but that's how the society views it. The lower status group, when he goes to the head of household, he raises the bar. He raises the bar. And I thought about uh, that, that line from, I think it's from Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility, right? Uh, with great power comes great responsibility. So. The head of household is viewed, since they have higher status in the society, since they have um, uh, more money, more ability, more time, uh, more freedom, I guess you could say, in some sense, uh, those with that higher status, Paul is enjoining to take on greater responsibility. And we're gonna, we saw that with wives and husbands already, but we're going to see that uh, this week with children and slaves as well. And I just want to point out uh, what we talked about last week uh, with the upside-down kingdom, um, this is what leadership in the church looks like. And it's completely different than what our society does. And we're going to talk a lot today about, uh, at the end, about society's pressure against the family or society's pressure against the household in modern times. Uh, but, it, but this is true back then as well. Um, they viewed leadership back then very similarly to the way that we view leadership in the, from a worldly perspective today. They viewed that if you had higher status, if you had uh, more authority, more power, that you got to take advantage of that for your own gain. And that certainly plays out in the relationship with wives. It certainly plays out in the relationship with children. And it certainly plays out in the relationship with slaves in the ancient world, as we're going to keep unpacking it. But that is not what's in Paul's mind. This is what's in Paul's mind. What's in Paul's mind is that if you have greater power, if you've got greater, uh, you could say giftings, if you've got greater uh, authority, if you've got greater freedom in the culture, whatever, whatever it is, however it manifests itself, that you, you take advantage of that, not for your own good, but for the community's good. You serve everyone else in love through whatever mechanism that that is. So with that in the background, I wanted to share some information about childhood before we reread these verses about kids and parents. So childhood in the ancient Roman Empire, uh, it's a lot different than how we view children today. Uh, children were not treated as little people that developed over time, but they are rather viewed as miniature adults that uh, didn't have control over themselves, and so they needed to be disciplined very strictly. Um, so, uh, and then statistically, families face significant peril over time. Uh, half of the children born in the Roman Empire were dead by age 10. And of those that survived, 25% of them uh, would have lost their father by age 10. 
So family units were constantly shifting, constantly changing uh, because of the hard living conditions. Uh, many children uh, in cities, they would work in shops around age seven, my son Liam's age. Uh, they would be working in shops in the cities. And if they were out in the rural areas, they'd be working the farm around age seven. So childhood, in a nutshell, it was not a whimsical time. It was not a time for freedom and exploration and joy. It was uh, very difficult. And I want to point out, too, that we know from the Bible that in the public sphere, children were often viewed as annoyances. Uh, maybe you recall this record in the Gospels a couple times where uh, people bring their kids to, uh, for Jesus to bless the kids. And the disciples are like, no, keep them away. We don't need these rabble-rousing kids around here, right? Kids were not, you know, if we did that in modern times, people would be like, why are you pushing kids away? Like, kids are beautiful. Like, why would you do that? But in that culture, kids, in, in the public sphere, kids were viewed as annoyances. And, of course, Jesus uh, rebuked his disciples and says, bring the little kids to me. Bring the children to me. So this is what Lynn Kohick said about this mixed environment of children in the early church community. This is what she says about that here. She says, quote, Within the church gathering, both slave and free children hear Paul's message. An ancient household raised slave children together with free children. They ate the same food and had the same access to health care. That is, to what would have passed as health care in Roman antiquity. <laughs> Slave children had no official father, and many did not know their father or their mother. Instead, their owner served as the authority over them. Yet in the church, they would have surrogate fathers and mothers who cared for them in the Lord. It likely happened that a believing slave woman or man who minded their household's children would bring both free and slave children to the house church. The slave child could expect no inheritance. The slave boy was a filius neminus, a son of no one. Thus, Paul's language of adoption must have excited them and perhaps perplexed some free people in the congregation. The classicist Sarah Rudin points to the strong desire for inheritance as a badge of honor in the ancient world and paraphrases Paul's message. We offer you an equal share of the community, such as most of you could only dream of before, end quote. So, what I'm trying to point out here is, is that the message, this gospel being the level playing field that Paul's unpacking here in the letter to the Ephesians, that would have been revolutionary at that time and would have been incredibly attractive to the people that he's addressing here in the household code. It would have been incredibly attractive to the wives, the women. It would have been incredibly attractive to the children, and it would have been incredibly attractive to slaves. Um, so Christianity, we know historically, was popular among what we would you could say, were the lower class people of that time. Uh, there is an ancient uh, critic, Roman critic of Christianity that once said, uh, Christians show they want and are able to convince only the foolish, dishonorable, and stupid, only slaves, women, and little children, end quote. So that's what the criticism of Christianity was, was you're giving hope to these people that shouldn't have any hope. That was the criticism of Christianity. And here Paul is unpacking for us this hope very specifically for these three groups of people. So this, again, to me, highlights the force of the gospel message. Uh, think about in the ancient society, those with a higher status, the people that Paul's addressing, secondly, in these uh, wives and husbands, you know, the master, the husband, the father, those with higher status might not want to give up that higher status, that higher honor, to become a Christian. But those who were in the lesser parts of those relationships would often be attracted by a gospel that said, hey, we're all on the same playing field. Now, with all this in mind, let's reread the first four verses here about children. 
Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So here in verse 1, children are commanded to obey. It is a commandment. And we, we've already unpacked that there's an obvious restriction here of obeying within godly parameters. Okay, they're to obey in the Lord. Uh, so children being told to do something immoral or against God's will, they should not obey. Paul then, in the next verse, appeals to the fifth of the Ten Commandments, which has a promise attached to it. And what he's saying is children who obey in the Lord, they're going to be blessed because of God's uh, design, God's setup on this. Now, I want to point out that, this, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Uh, people, we, we tend to take that and uh, make it like a universal promise or something like that in this life. And I want to just point out that it's not a universal promise in this life. Um, unfortunately, because of the powers, because of the enemy, because of what happens in this life, um, not all the children who obeyed their parents in the Lord throughout time uh, lived a long life or specifically lived an easy life. Uh, so this is not a promise that this life would be perfect or that it would be long, uh, but rather that the child would be blessed by honoring the parent's wisdom. And I do want to, to point out and suggest that I'm not, not saying that this has to be true, but I'm, I'm thinking that this might be a kingdom promise, that, that people who, uh, the children, the type of children that would obey their parents in the Lord uh, will be the kind of children that will end up inheriting in the kingdom of God, will end up being there in the kingdom of God. And then it will go well with them, and they will live long in the land that God will reserve for us. And again, what I find interesting is in verse 4, it says, uh, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So which one has the greater responsibility, the child or the father? The father has the higher responsibility. Father has the higher responsibility. So Paul places a more important command on the head of the household, the father here. And the father is charged to bring up children well, to nurture them, and to not provoke them to anger. And I wanted to give a little bit of an illustration from our lives. Um, I am a father, and uh, I like dad jokes and puns, uh, sometimes to the detriment of my children. And uh, one such example is I love uh, the silly dad joke where my son, specifically Liam, will say, uh, hey, Dad, I'm hungry. And I'll look at him and I'll say, hey, hungry, I'm Dad. And do you think that Liam likes that joke very much? <laughs> no, he always gets very mad at me when I give that joke. So uh, I should listen to this more and probably not use that joke as much as I do. Um, it, doesn't, it, it goes a little bit better when he says, hey, Dad, I'm full. I think I'm ready to get uh, down from the table. And I'm like, oh, hey, full, I'm Dad. And he's like, He's like annoyed more than angry because uh, then the hunger is not fueling the anger, right? Uh, but he still doesn't like the joke. He still doesn't think it's a good joke. So I can improve on this for sure. Um, I want to uh, get a little bit more sober-minded here because the next thing we're going to be talking about is slavery. And um, I think a lot of us probably have grown up in church traditions where um, we've immediately tried to translate this pa uh, passage, this part of the passage, into uh, the workforce, the modern workforce, into bosses and people that work underneath bosses or something like that. And that is um, uh, very explicitly not how I'm going to handle this text this morning uh, because that's not what he was talking about. He was talking about slavery. And so we have to do business with that. 
Um, and I want to say we're going to talk a little bit about what slavery looked like in that culture at that time, and it was different in many ways to what we understand in the American South uh, during the uh, 16, 17, 1800s. But I just want to point out that there's no type of slavery at any time or any place that is good. There's no slavery that has ever existed that is good. The Bible in multiple places discusses slavery, and it never outright condemns slavery the way that we perhaps would like it to. Paul doesn't outright condemn slavery here. Uh, it doesn't outright condemn slavery in the Old Testament in the Mosaic Law. Now, what we can say is that the Mosaic Law was incredibly ahead of its time, that in terms of dealing with slaves, it dealt with slaves very equitably and fairly and justly. Uh, we can say that Paul's view on slavery was way before its time as well. But remember, Paul doesn't call for an end of slavery in the Roman Empire. And I think there's a reason for that. I think the reason for that is, again, we talked about this last week, the Christian movement during the Roman Empire was incredibly small. There was no way... Am I good? Okay. There's no way that this movement uh, was going to be able to affect cultural change. If you talk about, you know, thousands of people in the context of a larger empire, uh, there's no way that it would have been able to affect any serious cultural change. So Paul's interest primarily is on spreading the gospel, uh, bringing people to Christ, and not upsetting the delicate balance of peace in the Roman Empire. Uh, Paul explicitly tells us in another epistle that he does not judge those outside the church. He says that in 1 Corinthians 5. So he views his audience as the people within the Christian movement. This movement is a very small subset of the larger Roman Empire. And what he's trying to do, uh, particularly here, is he's speaking to a group of churches in and around Ephesus in 62 AD, part of a small but growing religion of people who are following Jesus. And so what he's trying to do is, how can the gospel spread and the gospel be honored in all these social interactions while we don't mess up uh, the unity in the Roman Empire? Because if, they were, if he was to say that slaves should revolt and they should cast off their masters, then what would happen is anarchy. And the Romans would have shut down Christianity as quickly as possible because they would have seen what was going on. They would have, they would have squashed it. So I don't, I don't think that Paul had the license to say what we probably would have liked him to say. What Tim Mackey says about this in the Bible Project Ephesians class is this. He says, this is God's word forged in the heat of missionary complications. Okay. So with that in mind, knowing that Paul doesn't go as far as we would like him to go, uh, but knowing that he does, for example, in the book of Philemon, address a slave owner and tell him to treat the slave like a brother, just like he says here, he addresses slaves directly here in this context, and he expects us to treat them as equals in this context. Um, he doesn't go perhaps as far as we'd like him to go. So I just wanted to caveat that. I wanted to share a little bit more about slavery in the Roman world. Uh, depending on the location in the empire, as few as 10% and as many as 50% of the population would have been slaves, uh, with more slaves, higher slave proportion in the bigger cities where more of the wealthier people lived. And as we mentioned before, Christianity was attractive to slaves, which means that in a city like Ephesus or Rome, it's likely that one quarter to half of the attendees of a local fellowship uh, would have been slaves. A lot of slaves would have been. And we also know um, that slaves were involved in leadership in the early church. 
Um, there's some historical records that suggest that Onesimus, the slave that Paul is entreating Philemon about, actually becomes later the bishop of a large church. Uh, that's not in the Bible, so you know, it's church history, but uh, slaves were very important to the ancient church. And while just like slavery at any place at any time, there were good masters and there were bad masters, while there were people indeed who sold themselves into slavery, uh, ironically for upward mobility purposes to make sure that they had food in their bellies, and while there were people who became freed in Roman slavery, slavery was and maintains and remains to be a dehumanizing institution. Slaves were viewed then as property and as less than their owners. Slaves were able to be abused in many ways without legal recourse. And even freed slaves were limited in what they could do legally and economically. Uh, specifically, as Lynn Kohick pointed out in the prior quote, slaves had no family lineage, so therefore no inheritance, limited economic mobility, limited hope. So that is the backdrop for what Paul is about to say here to slaves. And he's already told them, as Lynn Kohick pointed out in the earlier quote, Paul's already given them hope. He's already given them a family. He's already given them an inheritance. These things would have been shocking to them. And this is what Paul says in verse 5 to, to slaves. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. So Paul here, just like he commands uh, kids to obey their parents, that's a command. He commands here slaves to obey their earthly masters. And again, I believe Paul's interest here is in not upsetting the peace in the Roman Empire. He doesn't want the Romans to come in and shut down the Christian movement. But he also wants the gospel to be attractive. Um, so now imagine the situation where you have a slave and they were one way before Christ. Then after Christ, they become more obedient, more faithful, more looking upon the needs of the master. What would that do for the master? It would pique their interest. What's changed in them? How's how, how, you know, was this this Christianity thing that, that started uh, changing you? And so then you start to attract people. You start to get people interested in the gospel. Now, while doing this, while encouraging slaves to act in a way that would have promoted the spread of the gospel, Paul also reorganizes the thinking of the slave. A slave would have viewed themselves as doing things on their master's behalf, and especially if their master was an unbeliever, that could be seen as less than noble work. But Paul encourages them to not think of them as serving their master, but who are they serving? They're serving Christ. And that critical mental move uh, would have been unbelievable. Uh, instead of viewing themselves as slaves to men, the slaves in the Ephesian congregation were to view themselves as slaves to Christ. This is a much higher calling than what they had originally. And I'll point out, too, that Paul uses that language about himself, too. In multiple epistles, he says, I am the slave of Christ. So when he's addressing these slaves, he's giving them equal status as himself. I mean, imagine the apostle, a free man who is a Roman citizen, who is a Jew, who was probably independently wealthy, originally at least. Um, all these things comes to you and says, you serve Christ like I serve Christ. How freeing would that have been? So let's keep reading here. Verses 8 and 9 are interesting too. 
Verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. So Paul doesn't stop his surprising statements with verses uh, 6 and 7. He continues with some pretty interesting things here. First, implicit in Paul's statements here is the realization that slaves have the ability to choose, to discern, and to do good works. As Lynn Kohick explains, Paul asserts the impartial justice of God and the lack of favoritism that defines his kingdom rule. Still speaking to slaves, but with owners listening in, Paul acknowledges what is common information, specifically that whoever does good will be rewarded by God. What is good? Paul noted that God has prepared good works for believers to walk in, chapter 2, verse 10. Paul challenged the Ephesians to do good works with their hands so as to share with others and to speak what is good or helpful to build up others, chapter 4, 28 and 29. Both slave and free then are under obligation to do good deeds and speak good thoughts so as to bless the church and live out the gospel before all peoples. Paul describes slaves as having the capacity to know the will of God and to do it, verse 6. An astonishing statement given the prejudice of the day that viewed slaves as untrustworthy and lazy. Paul elevates the slaves' deeds as those done under Christ, effectively undercutting the evaluation of the slave owner. Now, that's part of this that's really interesting. The second thing that's really interesting about what Paul says is what he says in verse 9. Because when, when Paul turns his attention to the masters, he commands them to do the same to them. Now, this is vague. We don't know exactly what Paul's talking about, do the same to them. Uh, but I think in the context, what's probably being talked about here is Paul is telling the masters to serve their slaves. He's been telling the slaves to serve their masters. So now those that are in the congregation that are slave owners, that do have slaves, he's telling them, Paul is holding them to, to, the, to the task of, of servitude. He's telling them to, to serve their own slaves. This is completely radical, completely upside down, completely different than what we would expect from someone at this time. Paul couldn't do anything about slave owners in general. There's nothing that he could do about all the slave owners in the Roman society at that time. Many of them were not Christian. Most of them were not Christian. But what he could do is he could teach the Christian slave owners to submit to everyone in the congregation and to serve their own households in love at home. And so that's what he does here. I want to give another example from history. There's a New Testament scholar by the name of Bruce Longenecker, and he wrote a book of historical fiction called The Lost Letters of Pergamum. And like I said, this guy is a New Testament scholar. He's well acquainted with the historical context of uh, the New Testament. And um, in this book, uh, what, what happens is a character named Antipas, uh, who's conveniently named after an early martyr of the Christian faith. Um, this character named Antipas uh, he's a Roman citizen, he's wealthy, uh, he's privileged, and what happens during the course of the book, uh, the novel, is that he goes from uh, being a pagan and worshiping the pagan gods to uh, following Christ by the end of the book, and eventually at the end of the book, he gets martyred, I believe, uh, not to spoil uh, the whole thing, but again, all this stuff's very, uh, it's like happened 2,000 years ago, so it's not too much of a spoil, hopefully. Um, so what... Um, Longernecker describes in his book is he describes Antip Antipas, this wealthy, pagan, uh, uh, privileged man, 
uh, walking into his first Christian assembly. And he describes what he sees. And what he sees is he sees a table of people eating a meal. And he sees uh, men and women together. He sees uh, adults and children together. And he sees free people, freed people, and slaves together. And he doesn't have a, a way to understand any of this. Why? Why are the wealthy people eating with the poor people? Why are the kids eating with the adults? Why are the women and the men eating together? Why is everyone serving each other in this moment? He doesn't, it doesn't make sense to him. It doesn't compute to him. But what, uh, what shocks him, what amazes him at first, is what draws him into the community of faith. And so we can imagine someone like Antipas showing up into an Ephesian fellowship 2,000 years ago and asking the same questions that Antipas asked in the, in the novelization. You know, why is everyone at the same table? Why are the slaves at the same table as the rest of us? Why do they treat each other so well? How can this husband and this wife have such a good relationship? How come this guy has such a good relationship with his children? I don't have a relationship like that with my children. How does he do it? And the answer is because the gospel has changed him, because the, the apocalypse of Jesus in his life has changed him. And so Antipas is viewing these people who quite literally have had the gospel change their lives. And because of that, he gets drawn in. And I think that's the whole point of what Paul is doing here. Paul is, is writing these things by revelation. God is helping him sort through what he can say, how he can say it, to, to allow the gospel to be lived and still make sure that the Romans aren't going to come in and quash the Christian movement. So Paul's being as subversive as he can. He's being as forward-thinking as he can. If Paul had his wishes, I have no doubt that he would free every slave in the Roman Empire, that he would uh, enforce all sorts of stuff on people in a godly way, right? That, that, that certain rules and laws would be made to protect women and children and all, the, all those things. Paul would have done that if he could have. He was, he was a, an apostle of a very tiny movement 2,000 years ago. Now we can think about things a little bit differently because there are billions of us around the world. That's not what it was like back then. So I want to take some time to go through the four layers of interpretation. Um, what does this mean for our lives? And I want to sort of encapsulate uh, a lot of what we've been seeing so far with the whole household code. Uh, but just to start with where they would have applied it. In the original context of Ephesians, the original audience would have been very keyed in. They would have understood very clearly that the traditional notions of the household code were being radically questioned by Paul. The elites in the society specifically were told that they were part of that verse five, chapter 5, verse 21 of submitting to one another in love, that they were to serve one another in love in line with Jesus' teaching on leadership. And this is a major departure from the culture at that time. So what does the text mean for us today, 2,000 years later? Um, I have some general questions from, again, the, the last three weeks that I think will be helpful for us. Um, and some of these I actually received from people over the course of the last couple of weeks. So if you have more questions, we can talk about those after church as well. But um, the first question is, what about regular decision-making in the modern family? People have been asking me, what about the regular decision-making? Does the husband make all decisions? Or do you split decisions? Or how, how do you do decision-making? I want to I start with what the text says, and then we'll progress to what I think about it. 
Paul's words indicate that wives, children, and slaves all have the ability to have a relationship with God. So in that culture at that time, all those people, the marginalized groups in society, they all have access to God, they all have the spirit, they all have the ability to make their own decisions. So submission in this context does not necessarily imply that husbands or head of households need to make all the decisions. Um, that's not implied by submission here in the context. Although I do think that we've talked about this, the word submission does imply some amount of uh, greater responsibility perhaps. The point being made in this passage is that the power dynamic between the head of household and everyone else, that power dynamic, is not to be used for the benefit of the husband or the father or the slave owner. Instead, that power comes with a responsibility to serve the others in love. And in our culture, I think that that aspect still applies. So I'm not going to tell you exactly how to make decisions in a family. There are many ways to make decisions in a family. Um, even in that culture and at that time, women were tasked with making a lot of decisions related to the children um, and probably to female slaves as well. So I think that the key principle that's being demonstrated in this passage is servant leadership. And as long as our marriages and our families demonstrate that, uh, there are a lot of ways that we can work out the specifics on who makes what decision when and all that. A lot of that can be worked out as long as we understand that we're to serve one another in love. That's the key foundational that we, principle that we get here in Ephesians. Here's another fascinating hypothetical here. Uh, what if someone like a pastor asks another man's wife to do one thing and the husband has a different perspective on the same thing? Uh, this was a tough one for me. Uh, first of all, I hope I never do this to any of you in the room. <laughs> never put any of you that are wives in this position or any of you that are husbands in this position. Uh, but I have seen this happen uh, to other people. Um, look, here's, here's the thing. In the context here, Paul addresses wives. And he says, uh, you know, I suggest that you submit uh, to your husbands. Um, but in the context, the wife has the authority to make the decision. It's up to the wife. There's nothing here in the context that says that husbands, you've got to enforce your wife's submission on X or Y or Z. That's not what Paul says. There's no enforcement here. It's very specifically not used. Uh, so I think in the context, again, the wife has the authority to make whatever decision according to her conscience. And so um, here we have a classic example where the Bible doesn't answer the question that we would want it to answer. We'd want to know how to adjudicate this, but the wife has to do it with her conscience. God, God values the wife. God values the decision-making ability of the wife in this situation. Um, so God has given the wife the ability to discern she gets to make the decision, and then you deal with the, the repercussions of whatever that decision is as a family later. This last question is a little bit more vague. Uh, what would Paul say to us today? So Paul's negotiation of the ancient culture and practices is similar to what we see with modern missionaries. Um, I got a couple hypotheticals for you here. Uh, imagine a situation, uh, this happened in Africa, for example, when Christians came across certain tribes in Africa, where you meet the tribe, and the tribal leader has five wives and a whole bunch of kids. And in that little tribe, uh, if you were to divorce a, a wife, then she gets no inheritance, she gets nothing. So what do you do? Do you walk up to that tribal leader and say, hey, you need to divorce four of your wives and disown them and disinherit them? And they go hungry, and they don't have the ability to feed themselves or their kids anymore? Is that how you solve that problem? Or do you start with the next generation, maybe? I mean, these are the kinds of decisions that you have to make in these, 
interesting missionary environments. Uh, what about if the gospel had reached the Amazonian uh, uh, matriarchal societies in Brazil, for example? You show up saying that wives should submit to husbands, you're going to get an arrow in your chest. <laughs> right? So how do you negotiate that? How do you deal with that? So these things, the principles stay the same. The fact that the gospel is a leveling factor stays the same. But a lot of the details can be worked out in these different contexts, especially as you're bringing these cultures more to a Christocentric type of culture. So um, I think it's hard to know exactly what Paul would say to us today. Uh, but I do think he would tell us uh, a couple of things. First of all, he'd tell us to keep the gospel at the center of everything. We're all on that level playing field. Uh, we are all one body. We are all united together in Christ. No one is greater. No one is lesser. We all have an inheritance coming. We are all part of God's family. We have access to God, and all of us have access to God. We have an amazing hope in God's kingdom. So in light of all that, I think he would still say we should submit to one another, as it says in chapter 5, verse 21. We should serve one another in love. We should live in our families in such a way that those around us wonder how our families, how our situations are so different from theirs. In closing, I want to say that I know that this section of Ephesians is controversial. Uh, it was controversial back then. Uh, it's still controversial, but for different reasons today. So as we, as we close the section of Ephesians on the household code, I wanted to state some things incredibly clearly. God's design is no more war, no more racism, no more slavery, no more sexism, no more poor, no more strife, no more inequality, no more evil. That is God's design. How do we know this? We know this because of the description of the kingdom of God found in the prophets, like Isaiah. We know this because of the ministry of Jesus and the things that he taught and what he did. We know this because of the words of the other apostles in the other New Testament writings. And I just want to reflect on the fact that the, the world around us promotes division. And I think about this in light of our families and our, and our households. Think about what the news media presents and the, and the social media presents and what uh, popular media presents to us about women and men and about relationships. How many functional marriages are there on the television screen? Uh, how many times do we see that women actresses are, are, are outmoded by the time that they're 35, even though men can still act until they're 55? Or, they can hold leading roles until their 70s. So we're told, we're taught implicitly then that women are to be discarded at 35, that that's it, that's it. That's when their beauty is done, especially if they've had children. That's it, boom, throw them away. Think about all the jokes about like Leonardo DiCaprio and how his girlfriends can't get past that 35-year-old. I mean, we're, we're just steeped in this culture where we have uh, the degradation of women and that women are only good for this one thing. They're only good for their beauty. And they're only good for that until they're 35. It's unbelievable to me. And then men, gosh, we're just all dumb. We're just all dummies. We couldn't make a good decision if it smacked us right in the face. Right? That's how society portrays households. That's how it portrays families over and over and over and over again. And I think, I think that the gospel message of unity, the gospel message of this level playing field, the gospel message of upside-down leadership, these things are worth living for. These things are worth fighting for. 
These things are worth, and I hope it doesn't happen, but they're worth dying for too. So the big picture that I take from this household code, the big picture concept here is the kingdom of God. Meeting Jesus should transform us. And one primary way that it should transform us is how we view leadership. Leadership looks like this. Looks like this in the upside down kingdom. We don't lord over people like what the world presents to us now, what the world presented in the Caesars and the the world leaders of the ancient world. That's not how we lead. We are to serve others in love. And as we serve each other in love, as we submit to each other out of reverence for our Lord Jesus, as it says in Ephesians 5.21, I think a lot of these other things will fall into place. And we will have households, we will have families that, that have the heartbeat of the gospel beating between that husband and wife and those kids to the point where it excites the people around them. It draws people in so that we can share with them this incredible gospel message. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, the great wisdom that we find here in Ephesians and for how it uh, rocked their worlds back then. Father, it's still rocking worlds today. It's still, um, still changing hearts and changing lives today. Father, we ask that we would be... Uh, Great examples of this in our marriages, in our families, in our relationships with our children. Help us, Father, to, um, to see each other as equals. And as we serve each other, to see them as more important than ourselves, as it says elsewhere. Father, that you would help us to see the beauty and the wisdom and uh, the glory that each of us has and can share together in community, Father, that you would enlighten our eyes and help us to uh, develop a greater understanding for why we are together in this community and how we are called to serve the greater community of Louisville and love. So, Father, I just ask for your continued help with these, uh, these high and lofty goals because we need your help with this, Father. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information on how we are striving to follow Jesus together here in Louisville, Kentucky, check out our website, compasslu.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter and view additional resources.